other people said, you know, this is really being overblown. They're following all the safety precautions. People are going to sporting events that are bigger than this. This is going to be safe. This is a sophisticated vaccinated crowd. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. Oh, you regret this? And you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them... Well, to the welcome to a very sophisticated and vaccinated crowd here on the Ruthless Variety Program. Wow, what a statement, huh? That is so, like, it, 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 it's telling it's very mask off. They're like, oh, we're comfortable. We're among friends. We can talk about how, <laughs> oh, these peasants, these peasants and their diseases. But this is a sophisticated crowd at Obama's Martha Vineyard. So what... Annie Carney of the New York Times was speaking about, who, by the way, is a, is a very nice person, but but she did let the mask slip, uh, so to speak, here a little bit. She was talking about Barack Obama's birthday party, which, of course, happened last weekend to great fanfare. Yeah, I saw the uh, the leaked video of him on the dance floor without a mask. Yeah, he was working it. Yeah. But, like, we have a, we probably have a different take. So I, I, I was watching all of the outrage from some of my favorite people on the internet over the weekend. And I just couldn't disagree with it more. I mean, here's the thing. Here, this is my, my take on this. And Smug, you may have a similar one because you've talked about this in some ways. Like, you can't cancel Pearl Jam. Yeah, right? no way. So my, my view is, like, thank God. Now we know. Now we have the scoreboard. Yep. Now we know exactly what it is. Like, listen, Barry O just took the game and set the ground rules. So... Good luck shutting stuff down on the conservative side, brother. We know what's we know how to get there now. It's it's, it's such a great story. Uh, exactly for the reason that you said, like, good luck telling people they can't have their weddings now. Uh, because here's the other thing. Like, you know, that area of Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard, is considered one of those, like, CDC HUD zones yeah. for Delta. So it's right. not like, you know, oh, they, they, this is no problem. That area, you know, the CDC is like, this is a HUD zone. So they're disregarding that to begin with. But here's the thing is, I, I, I agree. You know, it, it's time for a return to normalcy. Anytime, you know, it, it's great because it's going to point out so much hypocrisy on the other side where they're like, oh, my goodness, this this is a super spreader event. But they're like, no, this is a sophisticated crowd at Obama's. A sophisticated, it's a sophisticated crowd. You don't understand. Well, look, I mean, I can understand why people are upset, though. I mean, you know, if you had a family member get ill during lockdowns and you couldn't visit them in the hospital yeah. or, you know, God forbid somebody dying, you can't have a funeral for them. And, uh, then you see Obama boogieing on the dance floor. Like I can, I can understand no, why I'd people be, are upset yeah, I'd be pissed you know? about that. But, but for all the rest of us who may have some of those events that we encounter over the next year, you ought to send a thank you note to Barack Obama. Right. Yeah. Right. Because good luck telling us that we can't have a party now. Right. And, and, and I'll be honest. The Ruthless Variety Program's got a personal stake in this debate. We're going to have plenty of parties. Yeah, yeah starting, we're the road. Starting soon. We've got one coming up. Gosh, are we a week away? We're one, a week out from Iowa. One week, yep. I mean, we're going to have we're gonna have the party of all parties in Iowa, and if anybody... I might even dedicate this to Barack Obama. No, you can't give us any, any grief at all. Yeah, we're going to actually have to have a, a bigger party in Iowa than Obama had, and I think we're up to task. Hey, listen... No masks, just hanging out like it's normal. 
No problem. I mean, it's the Iowa State Fair, folks. Yeah. Well, you got to do it one way, and we intend to do it the right way. But in case we were going to encounter any resistance, which we expected, and we do expect, um, now we've got a great case study. There you go. And ours is actually, that's the other thing is like, the Obama thing was so performative in every way possible. Like they tried putting out the word that, oh, we're, we're cutting back on the guest list. They didn't really cut back. Well, actually, they did themselves a favor on that. You notice that when they cut the guest list, all they did is eliminate the dorks from DC. They did, like Axelrod, gone. <laughs> like the guy who helps you win, gone. <laughs> like zero chance Jay-Z was getting cut from that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's not getting cut. And then what's funny is I read this other story, and it was uh, they were they were calling folks who had been cut and saying, no, actually, you can still show up. Because folks had already like rented out houses. We're in Martha's Vineyard. Oh. They were like, oh, well. Like, uh, uh, I can't remember who it was. Someone got cut, had the house in Martha's Vineyard. I'm like, oh, well, I'll be fine. I'll just hang out here anyways. But they got the call. They're like, no, actually, you can come back. Because <laughs> it's performative. <laughs> and the other example is like they, they put out this like uh, story about how, oh, you know, uh, Questlove is, is curating this like uh, meat-free, you know, vegetable-based, uh, you know, uh, menu. No, it turns out that was there was, there was meat there. It, all the whole the whole thing is just performative, right? You know, it's like, well, of course, Obama's got you know a, a meat free menu, and uh, he hired a, a COVID coordinator. Like, what's the COVID coordinator doing? They're like, uh, there's 700 people in a tent. Yeah, there is there is some something really enjoyable about seeing like the online persona of these libs, their virtue signaling, catch up with them in oh, yeah. re- in real life. Yeah, right, like to the vegan menu you know, to the canceling the guests or whatever, you know, I mean, all they do is lie on the internet and tell you how to live your life. And they're the biggest hypocrites in the world. Completely. I, I, I agree. And I will say, I think Barack Obama is amongst the worst, if not the worst president of all time. But the thing that I appreciate most about him is that he blows through that kind of stuff. Like he's not, you're not throwing off his party. Yeah. Right. He didn't even, not for a second, did he give you the impression he was canceling that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so we've got a little bit of housekeeping here, and then uh, we got to get into the important part. I want to mention, so this episode, we like to have a lot of fun on the Variety program. We like to, to sing and dance and entertain, as you know. Um, but we also inform, and there are two things that are happening right now in public debate in Washington, D.C. that you will not hear anywhere else that we felt like we needed to get under the hood and actually explain really what was happening. One is COVID-19 with the Delta variant and all of these new mask requirements and everything else. It goes beyond sort of our public discourse ability to communicate. Like we have our opinions, right? But we got to bring somebody in who actually knows the science on this stuff to know whether this is bullshit or not. And so you'll recall we had Dr. Marty McCary in February who gave us an exact roadmap of what was going to happen with the vaccinations. We asked him to come back and give us an exact roadmap of what's happening with Delta. He did it. He's on the program. I'm really excited. You're going to love this interview. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's best sometimes to just call on the nerds. Let's be honest. I mean, great nerds. Great Don't nerds. Don't get me wrong. That isn't a pejorative. I wish I was as smart as him. Oh, no. He's, he's, he's brilliant. But you got you to gotta hear it because you have to know, like, mask mandates, kids, all the stuff that you're hearing, all the fear-mongering bullshit, you, you actually have to hear the science behind it. You're, it's going to blow your mind. Second thing that's happening that has a very real impact on everybody who's listening to this program is the tax debate. You're hearing a ton of discussion about bipartisan infrastructure deals, right? 
Everybody's like, oh, there's all this bipartisanship, isn't it great? It's fantastic. It doesn't matter at all. The only thing in the world that matters is what comes next, which is an economy ruining socialism on ramp of the American capitalist system that quite literally will change the way the Americans live their lives forever if it's done. That is on the horizon. Nobody's talking about it. We had to get the tax expert, literally the tax expert from the Republican side in all of Congress, guy by the name of Senator Mike Crapo. He knows more about this stuff than anybody else to walk us through the list of horribles of what they're trying to accomplish. That's perfect. And and uh, the, it's good because you, you got to know what these these Dems were talking about when they said build back better. So yeah. You, so you're going to get that info. This is this is it. So it's enough. Like, we're, look, we're going to laugh and we're going to have fun. But you got to know this stuff because it's super important. Um, all right. So back to the housekeeping. Uh, we have read five star reviews and they're coming fast and furious. We really like it. Yeah. It's th- th- we appreciate all the minions and your wonderful reviews. That's why we read them. So this comes from Piano Cat 63. Uh, thanks for the five star. He said, I've built an army of listeners. I love the pod and I've built an army of, army of minion listeners. I've introduced it to my friends, to my family, who have introduced it to their friends and family. My 83-year-old grandfather is on hospice care and has lost his vision. There's not much left for him to enjoy these days, and even he has begun listening to the program. Thank you guys for everything you do. That Ah, is awesome to hear. Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's amazing. Isn't that just awesome, dude? It just makes you feel really good. Um, The next one is from Colin562. Good stuff. Said these guys and gals successfully strike an entertaining balance between the broccoli and candy spectrum on the political comedy. Political differences aside, I don't think there has been a similarly achieved since John Stewart led Daily Show in its prime. The primary difference is that one program is transparent and is hosted by political operatives. Thank you. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You know, and that's what articulated right there is basically what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And like, look, <clears throat> I'm a political operative. You can have your own opinion. Uh, you know, do your own research. But but John Stewart's not going to tell you he's a political operative. No, 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 <laughs> no. no nobody does. Or Colbert or right. all the rest of them. But, you know, it is what it is. Thank you for listening. We appreciate the, the reviews. Two things I have to mention before we get into uh, the meat of the program. And we're going to play games today. Um. The first is we won the Olympics. We did. Like there was any doubt, honestly. Yeah. Dude, I saw I saw somebody tweet like one of these like tanky like China stan accounts like tweeted um like the total for uh China and the total for Taiwan. Oh, and they added Hong Kong. Yeah, and they added yeah. in Hong Kong too. And they're like, Well, actually the real China won the Olympics. <laughs> I mean, cope, dude. Cope harder. What a loser. <laughs> but I think, you know, maybe even more newsworthy smug than um our winning the Olympics is the fact that you've now inundated the German coaching of the equestrian events. There was a, a German uh modern pentathlon coach who was disqualified last week for punching a horse that's the thing is it's the power of the program you know we've we've got the word out people you don't have to take it from horses if they're being belligerent <laughs> <laughs> he sees it as a good thing he's proud see i was i was thinking of it more like like we're living in like a twilight zone 
episode and like things we talk about on here manifest in the real world in like a scary way you know <laughs> and smug's like no good you don't have to take it it's mouthy horses i mean the sport itself is wild so apparently it's just like you know they have horses lined up you know if you're the rider you go uh you know it's it's by like a random pick they they match you up with a horse you get like a minute to hang out with the horse and this horse is just like belligerent like <laughs> right off the bat didn't want to didn't want to do any of the jumps anything and the coach is like maybe i'll try punching it you know guy squares up on the horse might as well but i, I saw the video and it wasn't even like a, a a punch honestly like the video is very it's tough to see if like it they're even like striking the horse you know it could be a pat i i couldn't tell like did he take your advice on the faint no, not at all. This they oh, you didn't, right at didn't square up. She it, it was a, it was a lady coach. Oh, clear, clearly not a friend of the program. Right. It, it, it looked like just like a pat. Honestly, in my opinion, I, I you know I want to see more conclusive footage. <laughs> Got to hear both sides. Got to hear both sides. <laughs> I love it. All right. So the question is: Do we play a game or do we hear from a carry? Should we hear from a carry first because that's important stuff? Yeah, I say we go straight to it. All right, Doctor Marty McCarry. I want to welcome to the program. Uh, probably smartest guy we've had on the program, honestly, uh, by degree and just by his rational thought and, and calming, soothing understanding of what we've all been facing with this pandemic. Uh, Dr. Marty McCary, welcome back. Great to be with you, Josh. Listen, you were here in February and you pretty much told us exactly what was going to be happening over the next couple of months with vaccinations and, and sort of cut through a lot of the hyperbolic nonsense. And one of the things that you explained to us that I thought was a pretty simple concept but seems to have eluded literally everyone else talking about it other than you is that, that COVID itself, COVID-19, is here to stay, right? It, you can mitigate its impact. And you can vaccinate and uh, to ensure that people aren't dying from this, but it's not like polio; it doesn't just evaporate, right? Right. It's like you know we have four other seasonal coronaviruses, right. and this is now going to be the fifth one. You know the way that there's so much stigma around this. I get it. We've been been burned, and there's been a lot of carnage. But now it's been downgraded for those with immunity to a mild seasonal virus, and somehow there's like a a pox on people that have, it's, you know, the breakthrough infections were totally blown out of proportion, still are, and people are conflating that with the real problem of Delta ripping through that 10 to 20% of adults out there right now with no immunity. That's where we should be putting all our energy. Right. So, so just to break this down, because I, I, I don't know why everybody can't figure this out, right? You seem to explain it very, very clearly to me. Again, this is the fifth coronavirus that we have in circulation seasonally we prepare for the other four we deal with the other four basically since the beginning of time by doing the things that you look out with with the flu right you wash your hands you, you do what you do yeah that's exactly right and you know i don't like it it wasn't my idea if people out there are angry they can blame the gain-of-function researchers that brew this thing up but that's a reality of what we have so the idea that somehow the unvaccinated are demons they pose, and they, they pose a risk to the vaccinated, they may pose a small risk of a mild common cold. Is that new in society? 
I mean, two years ago, you'd show up to work slobbering, coughing, hacking right next to somebody right. in a conference, right? <laughs> it's like they pose no public health threat to the vaccinated. Um, and so that's where we've lost our minds right now. So one of the things that keeps popping up every time I get in an argument with some of my uh, liberal friends about this is I, I articulate basically a, a less articulate uh, version of what you just said, but then they come back at me and say, okay, well, the unvaccinated basically are their brewing variants, right? That they are sort of like a Petri dish by which the rest of us have to sit and wait to see what ho horrible things come next because they won't get the shot. Right. Resorting to variant fear. <laughs> well, um, you know, that's an old argument, right? In your world of um, policy, I mean, my, my little tiny taste of it was when we were advocating for nutrition labels back in the day, the food industry said, oh, food prices are going to surge and we'll have world hunger and jobs will be lost. None of that happened, right? We had a competitive marketplace based on health in ingredients. Well, we're seeing it now with the fear, with the fear mongering around variants. And, you know, Newsweek had this cover titled saw, Doomsday, yeah. right? Right. So, and, and Fauci was stirring the pot when he was saying we're one variant away from total, you know, uh, resetting the board. Why would you say that right now? We're doing so well. Why? It's like me having a, a patient recover from a four-month hospitalization on the brink of death, and then when they finally walk out and go home, I point my finger and say, you could be back tomorrow <laughs> if you get hit by a car. Why would you say that right now? Delta's projected to peak in the next one to four weeks. And then in the north, we're going to see a small bump that's going to sequentially follow that. By the way, we've had over 1,200 variants, maybe, maybe 1,300. If, and you can see them. It's open source. We have a website that scientists use called nextstrain.org. And you can go in there and see we've had 19 major variants. Each variant has had 10 to 100 subvariants. None of them have evaded the life-protecting effect of immunity, of natural immunity or vaccinated immunity. So why do we think the next one will somehow evade it? It's just dishonest. It's disingenuous. Yeah. Well, so what is, is it just all it become so political that that's the motive here? It, because it seems to me what we're setting up is this failure to understand coronaviruses and how this one fits with everything else we've dealt with since the beginning of time. Coupled with things that you just talked about, this fear of, of variants, it, it seems like the progressive left in some ways has, has hijacked parts of the scientific community to make a case for a permanent pandemic, right? To be, we, we constantly need to be in fear of COVID-19 and everything that comes after it because unless everybody's walking around like in the top health, it's, it's COVID and we got to shut everything down. I think there's something to it, you know, when, you know, a lot of us were living in the corner of the hospital, you know, doing mathematics on statistical questions. And then all of a sudden we became king for a year and a half. Right? <laughs> and, and the taste of it is kind of nice. You know, you don't want to let go of the keys. <laughs> you know, I would love for this thing to be over. And the reality is that um, we're in a much better spot and we're about to see this thing decline massively. Now, some people want this thing to go forever. And I've seen, I mean, in, as, a, as a, a major public health threat pandemic forever, the reality is that um, when I wrote the piece way back in the winter, uh, February, saying, yeah. hey, we're going to be 
in a massive decline in the spring, and we're going to have a great summer. Now, Delta through, you know, I, I had said we're going to see cases seasonally in that article, and Delta just accelerated that season, right, and it squashed it together. But people, um, people came up to me and they said, you just wrote the most political ar uh, article of the year. And I said, political? What are you talking about? And they said, well, there's a bill on the floor of the House that's being debated right now that's trying to justify the largest spending in U.S. history on COVID, saying that COVID is the reason for it. And so that's where I think it, it unfortunately becomes ugly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I listen, it is definitely intersected with politics right from the beginning all the way through, and it continues to do that. One extremely concerning area where it is intersected with politics is the issue of children and schools. And you wrote a really good, I encourage everybody to go to the Wall Street Journal and look up the case against masks for children, which Dr. McCary wrote with, with a, uh, a colleague. Tell us your, give, it, give our audience your overview of that. So some kids do well with masks, Josh, um, and some kids don't. Some kids struggle, and some kids severely struggle to the point where they can't see because the mask is fogging up their glasses. And by the way, that's 25% of kids in America in school are wearing glasses. Our medical students struggle with wearing the surgical glasses and the surgical masks, okay? They're fogging up. They can't see in the operating room. We have to pull them aside. We have to tape the mask to their face, okay? Now, if the medical students are struggling with the mask, how do you think a six-year-old is doing, maybe a six-year-old that doesn't have parents that's, that are you know, helping them with this issue? So some kids really struggle. Remember, the number one issue on the minds or the number one uh, stress in the life of a lot of adolescents, it's not the national debt. It's acne, okay? And guess what? You get worsening acne about half the people that are wearing these masks. Rosacea, you get a change in breathing patterns. That's for sure. Now, we don't know what the long-term consequence is, but we do know 40% of anxiety diagnosis are tied to changes in breathing patterns. You get a higher CO2 level. Now, there's a study showing those levels are very high in JAMA. JAMA retracted it. I called the researchers in Germany and I said, why did JAMA retract your study? Do they just not like the results? Is that the new criteria for retraction? And they said, yeah, basically, they said there was one more scientific reviewer who reviewed it, and we begged them to share that review with us, and they refused to multiple times. So this is the new world of science, right, is we're going to retract the study because the results are not showing what we want it to show. There may be these consequences that we don't appreciate. And by the way, you can convert a child from being a nose breather to, the, to a mouth breather with a mask, especially a mask that's uncomfortable or doesn't have good fitting, Chronic mouth breathing is a known problem with child development. Over years, it can affect the development of the palate and the mandible. There's a well-known syndrome called adenoid face where the child has nose adenoid polyps and they're not nasal breathing, they're mouth breathing chronically and the face is elongated because the, the development has been altered. So there's all this stuff. Look, for a couple of weeks or months, probably there's no impact on a child. But we're coming on two years now, and yeah. there's this notion out there that there's no downside, that masks are harmless. And actually, when I talk to people around the country that say, well, I saw your piece, that's kind of an inflammatory title. I tell them, well, first of all, I, didn't, I don't write the titles. I, <laughs> but second of all, um, 
some kids really struggle with the masks. We don't know these complications and there's psychological benefits we're not even talking about, like the loss of a human connection. Yeah, that's the one that really stood out to me, Doc. I, 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 you wrote a paragraph here particularly talking about that, the human connection, particularly for young children, I'm quoting now, who are only learning how to signal fear, confusion, and happiness. Covering a, a child's face mutates these nonverbal forms of communication and can result in robotic, emotionless interactions. My goodness. I mean, I, you can, it's logical, right? I mean, you, they're just learning all of these things, and you're talking about kids in preschool and kindergarten. They don't know how to express themselves yet. In fact, because they've been behind closed doors for the last year, they're already behind, you know? I, you know, as you may know, I, I was one of the earliest advocates for universal masking in the U.S., wrote the yes. first piece. It was a New York Times piece in the spring of the early part of the pandemic last year. But, you know, as the data come in, we have to evolve our strategy. And there's downsides to these masks in some kids. 5% of kids in the United States have a cognitive, developmental, or physical disability. 25% are wearing glasses and they may struggle with fog. People are developing acne. There's downsides, the altered breathing, the loss of this connection, the lack of being able to visualize how expressions and teachers pronouncing words. That's a part of phonetic development. And so this idea that, you know, people tell me, oh, well, you know, I'm okay with the mask as a concession to the teachers union to make sure they're there in person. Well, that's fine, but that's, that's a political issue. That's not a medical issue. I'm thinking of it just in terms of the medicine side. There are downsides. Well, and, and as you pointed out in the piece, there's actually no studies that would indicate that it's better for children from the health perspective, from a pandemic perspective. Yeah, there's one shoddy study. It's not even really a study. It's more of a collection of data by school superintendents, and it showed zero benefit to masks in areas where there's low transmission, zero benefit to masking kids. This is just on kids where there's substantial transmission and a slight benefit in areas with extremely high transmission. Okay, so maybe that means in high transmission communities, the non-immune kids wear masks. But right now, the CDC vigorously issued this recommendation. All kids, all 56 million kids have to wear a mask, uh, regardless if they're vaccinated, 40% of adolescents are, regardless if they're in a low transmission community. Where's the data? The NIH spends $42 billion a year, not a single study has been on focused on masks and children. We just put that report out from Johns How, Hopkins. Yeah, I, I, so I just saw that, which I think is really important. I mean, we've been shoveling cash into the furnace like crazy over the last <laughs> year to try to, I mean, we studied basically everything there is to study. How is it that nobody has taken the time to do a comprehensive study of the impact of children wearing masks? Yeah, yeah, maybe they don't want to know. I mean, if we look at the, what oh, the that's a good point. government is putting out right now, I mean, some of the most shoddy research, late, underfunded, under, you know, misrepresented. The CDC just did this with natural immunity. But the NIH spends $42 billion last year. This is one of the first times I'm talking about this in public. So we just did this analysis. $42 billion spent the year of COVID last year on, on research at the NIH. Less than 2% went to COVID clinical research. Of the 2%, less than 2%, it was 1.8%. It was 57 grants were on health disparities in COVID, zero grants on do masks work for kids, four grants on transmission. How about like, how does it spread? I mean, that was the main question. I'm not downplaying health disparities in COVID, but there are 54 grants on substance abuse in COVID, 
and only four on how does it spread. This how, how does that decision making process work? Like, I just want to meet the guy who makes that that call. Well, I'd, I'd be happy to introduce you to Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis <laughs> Collins. Then, is because that the way it works? Old I mean, they're, they're basically the ones that are greenlighting these studies. They think it's more important to, to study the the various implications of substance abuse and COVID than why we have it in the first place. In fairness to them, they are just sitting at the wheel. And this is the way that bureaucracy operates. And I think, you know, part of diversity is age diversity. When you get a young, you know, firebrand in there who says, look, I don't care that this is the way that we're, we've always done it. I don't care that, that we have funding already committed to study Mexican hairless dog models in Alzheimer's. <laughs> we need to pivot that money now. That is a part of age diversity is you get that young mentality, the social justice-minded mentality. We didn't have that. So last year, we spent twice as much money on aging as a government, as an NIH, than we did on COVID research. And so as a result, you had a vacuum of data, no data, as all of us doctors were getting very good questions from the public. How does it spread? When are you most contagious? Do masks work? We couldn't answer those questions because we didn't have any studies. There was no funding for it. So as a result of that vacuum of knowledge, political opinions filled it. Oh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And it seems like pretty uh, ineffective and, and frankly dumb uh, politics has filled an awful lot of it. I want to ask you about the vaccine um, because there were a couple of, of news pieces that have come out over the last couple of weeks this weekend. Moderna talked about uh, potentially the need to add a booster shot uh, after six months and they sort of left it open as to when ultimately you needed to get that. What, what, what's, um, what's your view of all that? Yeah, well, first of all, if you don't have immunity, if you're an adult, um, we need to get people vaccinated. We're getting so distracted with other issues. And I actually thought Biden had said something very, very good uh, last week. He said, you know, yesterday, 400 Americans died. They didn't have to die if they got vaccinated. That's what we should be rallied around right now. Yeah. On the boosters, you know, the more we talk about these boosters, I think we were scaring away people from getting vaccinated. And some of us were, were concerned that pharma was running the narrative around boosters. You know, if it was up to the shareholders, you'd get a booster every Monday morning when you show up at work. Um, but the reality is that immunosuppressed people are getting boosters now. We're doing it. We're doing I'm doing it in my practice. I'm not making an announcement. I don't speak on behalf of Hopkins. But the research was done here showing only 60% of those immunosuppressed mount an antibody response. So we're giving them a third dose right now after we check their antibody levels. Mm -hmm. We may be doing the same for old people who got vaccinated early. And we're going to see probably an FDA approval for an indication of seniors, old people. It'll start with immunosuppressed because that's where the data is more mature. And then eventually we may see a, an interest in boosters for old people. The government already bought 200 million doses for boosters from Moderna. Moderna talked them into it. Um, we didn't even have any data, but they said, you know, they sold them. They did a nice job selling. Sales, right? Pharmaceutical sales. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess what I got the Purdue Pharma folks crossed over after they lost their jobs, probably. <laughs> I guess what, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, where are we at with all this? Millions of Americans choose every fall to get a flu shot, right? We've had it. We've trusted it. 
you know, it doesn't cover every flu. It mutates a little bit. You can still get the flu. Sometimes it just prevents you from getting super sick, but we've come to grips with all that. Aren't we in the exact same position with COVID-19? Yeah, maybe even better. Maybe the boosters may just prevent against a mild common cold-like illness, whereas with influenza, it kills 30 to 80,000 people a year. Um, so I think a year from now, my guess is that you're going to be given the option, those in the general public, not those high-risk groups like the very elderly or immunosuppressed people who don't mount a good immune response, but the general public is going to be told, hey, we can offer you a booster. It'll reduce the illness of a mild common cold most likely. Your protection against severe disease is solid. That's probably lifelong because that's not based so much on the antibodies. That's based on the memory B cells and T cells, which, by the way, they tend to, those cells are Republican. <laughs> antibody because they've been completely dis dismissed by the current medical establishment. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, more politics. Um, let me ask you this. A lot of people without any data that I've seen have suggested the Delta variant poses a greater risk to children. I've seen zero studies on that, but I don't know the answer to it. Um, is that the case? Do we have any data that would suggest that the Delta variant is is tougher on kids. Yeah, I think we always have to have the humility to be open to the fact that that may be the case. We have to look at the data and be open-minded and say, is Delta more dangerous in kids? And maybe we need to shift our entire strategy with kids. That's my approach. And so far, I've been hunting around out there talking to pediatricians, and they're saying no. It's Right now, it's an absolute number a higher, greater percentage are getting infected because Delta is more contagious, right. but the case severity rate is not that different. And right now, just to give you a little sense, I talked to hospitals in the North, big children's hospitals in areas with high vaccination rates, and they've told me they have zero COVID kids in the hospital, <clears throat> zero. They have kids with RSV infection. Right. In the South, like in Oklahoma and Texas, big children's hospital might have five to 20 kids hospitalized with COVID. And uh, they generally expect all of them to make it since we're much better at treating these kids. And they've got more kids with RSV virus than they do COVID-19 virus. Yeah, which is a respiratory, right? Respiratory illness that, that is, is that seasonal as well? Yep. Seasonal as well causes a lot of cases of the common cold. Okay. All right. See, we're getting educated here. This is, we're <laughs> figuring out RSV common cold. All right. Next time I hear that, I'm going to, I'm going to act like a scientist and know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and if I could just mention the B cells and T cells, because, you know, I, I try to stay very nonpartisan and the reality is that, you know, that, that, that's my true view on how we should approach science, but the public health officials and Biden administration as a result are completely ignoring natural immunity from prior infection. And they're disenfranchising a lot of people and they're losing trust. That's one of the reasons for vaccine hesitancy, along with the FDA, you know, looking for a stapler before they issue the full approval or waiting till, you know, Betty can run it to the notary or whatever the heck they're waiting on. I mean, <laughs> is by it the just time as simple as you don't have a piece of paper if you caught COVID? I mean, is that, <laughs> yeah. is that basically it? Probably. I mean, it's a, a unreal. I mean, it, with 200 million Americans who've received it, are you waiting to issue the full approval until the remaining, there's like five people left in America so we can assure them that 330 million Americans have gotten it safely so you, the remaining five, can feel good about now the safety, like the safety box has been checked and it's internally it's been checked at the FDA. But what's not checked is this thing called stability testing that tells them 
how long to prolong the expiration date on the vial. We don't need that information right now. Yeah. We're already giving it out. It's these old bureaucratic processes. And somehow the FDA said, oh, we'll probably give the full approval in December or January. A couple of us, you know, threw a gasket and just went postal on them through all the nasty means that we can do so in the public <laughs> form. And then they came out last week and said, oh, we're going to reallocate resources and anticipate a full approval consideration very, very soon in the next few weeks. So somehow they're going to reallocate whatever. But they're, they're ironically one of the drivers of hesitancy. But the other is this idea of ignoring natural immunity. So study out of Israel showed that natural immunity is six times better than vaccinated immunity. We're not seeing people who had previous illness from COVID come in with severe illness. We just don't see it. You open your eyes and you don't see those cases. It's some, you know, people for political reasons tell me, oh, it's, it, it happens. It's like Bigfoot. Every, these doctors tell me they've seen a case and nobody can confirm it. <laughs> and so the CDC puts out this ridiculous study you know, based on Kentucky. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, no, um, this, this is, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, so um, they said in Kentucky, you're 2.3 2 times more likely to get COVID if you have natural immunity than if you had vaccinated immunity. And therefore, all Americans, even if they had the infection, must get vaccinated. That was their very rigorous conclusion. Well, they, first of all, the rate of getting infected after natural immunity in their own study, in their data, was 0.09%. You got to be kidding. Compared to those... Yeah. So, I mean, basically you're comparing two infinitesimally small numbers and trying to make a comparison. Not only was that dishonest, but they were doing a certain, a statistical trick, and it really is a magic trick, where you, you do the analysis in all 50 states, and then you look for one state where it shows you the results where you want. Well, by random you chance, you pick it out. So why did they only report Kentucky and nowhere else in the country? They were fishing. That's the technique. It's called fishing. And there's about eight other flaws with the study. And by the way, it contradicts the other 14 studies that have been published. And so this is what they put out on Friday to justify, you know, because the, basically the Biden administration has decided that every human being with two feet needs to get vaccinated before the data is even in. Right. And the reality is natural immunity is a reasonable uh, way to say, hey, I think I'm going to hold off until the data on natural immunity matures more. Yeah. Oh, man, that is unbelievable. And of course, an unwitting media parrots that I saw everybody tagging Rand Paul, who's, of course, suggested that natural immunity works. So it's, you know, this is the definitive proof, Senator Paul, that he's wrong and what nonsense. Um, last question for you, Doc, and I'll get you out of here. If you are Dr. Fauci today and you're looking at the landscape, what's the recommendation for the fall? Where you think this heads into 2022? So the season for Gosh, it'd be interesting to be in his head. I've tried many times to. Thank <laughs> Let's you. stay out of his. I want your head, not his head. <laughs> I've seen enough of his head. <laughs> I think if I'd like him to do maybe five more hours of TV interviews a day, and then I'll feel more informed about what's happening. Now, the number of times, and now we're talking thousands, that I've been asked, Dr. Fauci said this, what do you make of it? And I, I think I'm just going to start saying, I've never ascertained any knowledge from anything he has ever said. He talks <laughs> in the most vague, considerable risk if we increase the, the fortitude of our efforts, which <laughs> might lead to some degree of normalcy. You know, what is it? Anyway, so this is, what's, this is the deal. Delta is going to peak in the next two to four weeks in the South. This virus is seasonal in different regions of the country, different times of the year. The South, is this is their season. 
The North is going, going to have their season come November, December, and January, and you are going to see the remaining small sliver of non-immune adults get this infection then, and because vaccination rates generally are higher there, it's going to be a small rolling increase. And so I think we're going to be done with most of, the, of Delta and most of COVID causing severe illness in the next two months. Wow. And then we'll be in a much better spot. And then we'll see little cases pop up and San Francisco will go from two cases in 2022, the fall of 2022, to six cases. And the San Francisco Chronicle, which is the absolute worst at fear-mongering, will report a 300% increase yes, in cases. That is exactly the way they do it. So, so my final takeaway here is if you live in the Northeast or you live in the North, you haven't seen sort of the peak of the Delta yet. If you haven't been vaccinated, Doc, is it fair to say that your recommendation is you get a vaccination? Yeah, if you have no immunity, get vaccine, vaccine, vaccinated. And if you're young, like teenager, one dose gives very good protection. Awesome. Awesome. Listen, this is so helpful. I can't tell you all of the fear-mongering, all the nonsense. We get one call with Dr. Marty McCary. He clears it all up. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. Great to be with you, Josh. All right. See ya. The guy's so smart. I mean, here's the, here's the thing. I, in both interviews... So generally, I prepare for these things. You learn about who they are. You kind of get a, a flavor for their point of view. And then you, you ask questions that you think will be eye-opening to the audience. With him, on both interviews that I've done, I've literally just wrote a list of questions that I need to know the answer for me and my family and what I'm watching the news. And I, and I know that like everybody is thinking the exact same thing. It is so rewarding to have somebody take all those questions nose on and and answer them and quickly Un, like unequivocally like he it's not like fauci where he gets up there and it's just a sort of generalization and these prognostications you know that doesn't uh that doesn't get into the nitty-gritty details and what i love about him is it's like in 30 seconds he can take a supposition and just dismantle it yeah right with just just the facts you know, and he doesn't try to get into the politics side. He's just like, here's the science, folks. Right. Like, I think the most alarming thing that he has opened my eyes to is how these scientific studies are entirely bullshit. Well, I mean, nobody got a grant telling you everything's looking good. Don't worry about anything. That's what it is. Right. And but I mean, he, I hate to be cynical, but like, that's the world we live in, unfortunately. I guess, man. But it's it's incredible. And what he has to say about kids wearing masks in schools yep. is real and this is a, this is a hill that we ought to fight on yep because it's the, the enormous this isn't about kids staying safe i asked him very specifically about whether delta has a, a higher degree of illness within children he said i'm always open to that argument because you don't know so you have to just aggregate as much data as you can but like as he explained not so far yeah not yeah. so far Oh, man. Anyway, great interview. I love the guy. I, 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 I hope we don't have to keep having him back for two years to talk about this stuff. But I have a feeling like the progressives are so invested in a permanent pandemic that we're going to be doing this for a while. And, and the thing is, that's the vector they're looking at. Uh, you know, this kind of segs into the next thing I want to get into. They aren't talking about the vector, which is the border crisis. Like, uh, you know, you even saw uh, the Washington Post essentially came out saying, 
it's apparent that the Biden administration doesn't have a plan for the border crisis, but Republicans are pouncing on this, and that's the real problem. Bouncing. It's unbelievable. Like, yeah, the problem's never the problem. Yeah. When it's a Democrat, the problem's never the problem. The reaction is the thing we have to talk about and report about. It's processy. It's so, incredible. When Republicans do it, it's the problem. When Democrats do it, it's the process. Yeah. So, so I pulled up some data from NBC News, of all places, that the positivity rate for migrants detained is 18%. Holy cats, 18%. really? Yeah, and here's the thing is, uh, in addition, over 25% of migrants recently scheduled for some expedited deportation flights tested positive. That's a, that's a document obtained by NBC News. It says, in the last two to three weeks, the percent positivity rates among all demographics has increased. This is from a, a Department of Homeland Security document prepared this week for the White House that says high positivity rates are, quote, straining the capacity of the NGOs and local governments that DHS currently partners with to care for them. Jesus. That's a problem, folks. And, and, you, and you heard what, uh, uh, I think it was McAllen, Texas, that had uh, 1,500 migrants released that ended up testing positive. Are you kidding me? How, how, you know, this is, this is a very serious problem, but they, they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about that. They say, oh, wow, Republicans pounced. Well, I want to get more into that. I also want to hit one thing on the red wave uh, before we wrap today. But we got, we got to play a game, guys. We got to play a game. Absolutely. What's, what, what game do we have today? We're going to play Veep or Veep. Oh, Excellent. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Let's hit that music. I love that music. An underplay. This is an underplay game, only because there's only a, a small amount of content that you can, because it takes some work to to put together, but it really is hard to tell. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a fun one to pepper in there every once in a while. You play Demer Journo, you play King of the Hill, and then you know, surprise, <laughs> Veep or Veep. So I mean, the, the context of the game, you have to guess. If for those of you who didn't hear our last episode where we played this, you have to guess whether or not is his Vice President Kamala Harris who said it, or Selena Meyer from yeah. from Veep the from HBO's yeah. Veep. Yeah, so a lot of comedic material here. Um, I'm going to read four statements, guys, and you have to. Dis- we're going to go one by one, not like Demer Journo. One by one, and you say whether it is Kamala Harris or Selena Meyer. Do you want us to say it after the all four are done? Or after each one? I think after each one. Okay. All right. And we go round by round. Somebody somebody looks there? away. Somebody says one or two. You know, okay. that sort of thing. How many are there? there four? Four. Okay. I'm ready. Statement number one. I just wanted to thank you, ladies. Just you queens, you stars, you icons. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Okay, I got my guess. Yeah, I got mine. Who who do you want first? Uh, I'll I'll do this. I'll I'll do the secret signal. Okay. It'll be one for Kamala, two for Selena. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. What do you got, Holmes? Kamala all day. Kamala all day? Same. Same? 
It is Kamala. Because <laughs> she, she just she over the top. always says the most ridiculous stuff. Thank you, ladies. You just you queens, you stars, you icons. Oh my! God. Oh, that's amazing. Is there any? Is there any context that I'd love to know? Uh, it was. This is uh, Kamala Harris makes cameo appearance in record-breaking Brandy and verse Monika versus battle. Okay, I don't, I don't even know. know. I don't know what that is. It's like Mad Libs. Yeah, uh, I don't know what that is. But it's it, it, it's it, it's such a Kamala moment. Like she tries so hard not to be like the 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 boring prosecutor. <laughs> She's like uh, she overcompensates. She way so hard. overcompensates. Like What's I bet up, Kirsten Queens? Gillibrand could be more hip at this point. Yeah. Pretty sad. <laughs> All right. Okay. Statement number two. I need to show that I'm a lone, fierce she-wolf. <laughs> All right, do I go first or he goes first? I'm fine with it. Uh, that's my secret signal. Okay. Smug has given me the secret signal for his pick. It, it, listen, if she-wolf isn't an HBO creation, I'm going <laughs> to slam my head in the door. It's got to be. My, my guess is Selena as well. Selena Meyer? It was, in fact, Selena Meyer. Oh, thank nice. God. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> it's a borderline call, though. You never know is the thing. It's borderline. You just don't know. Number three. If men got pregnant, you could get an abortion at an ATM. Oh, my God. <laughs> no Googling. Are you guys Googling? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. Hands off. That's my secret okay. signal. Hmm. I feel like it's too good a writing for Kamala to come up with. I'm going to say Selena. I'm guess I, I guess Selena as well. I think but the, the problem is I think I remember that line. Yeah, no, it's well, Selena me, Meyer. Perfect. It was it. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was it was like that's too good. It's too good. She can't. She has to be more cringy. She wouldn't be able to deliver. No, it would have to be much more cringy than that. Do you remember when she she spent an entire debate? crescendoing to the point where she called Joe Biden a racist. Oh, yeah. That was you awesome. Remember how ham-fisted that was? Yeah. Great. This is terrible. Well, I, Great I, moment. I've always said that it was like the, the ultimate in democratic politics because it shows you the casual nature by which they call each other racist. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, well, I mean, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, her reward was he made her his running mate. Yeah. I know. Like that... If a Republican sincerely believed another Republican was an avowed racist... Do you think there's any chance they'd be on the ticket together? Seriously, that's crazy. That's it's crazy. wild. It's wild. Oh, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna do uh, one of my intuitions, wow. feelings over facts maneuvers here. Oh, he's gonna pick it before you say anything. I'm gonna pick it before you say anything. No. Question okay. four. You, you know, you know the one you're gonna ask, right? Yeah. It's set in stone. It's set in stone. My guess is Kamala. Okay. Just, just <laughs> intuition, feelings, and magic. Here, here. He's just a gambler through like and through. It. He's batting on the two and two, even variation. Yeah. But as we've seen with this particular judge and jury, he does throw it up, throw it around a little bit. I do. Okay, what do we'll we got? We'll see. <clears throat> Let me scan through the other ones. No, <laughs> just kidding. No, no, no. 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 Um, okay, number four. You have to see and smell and feel the circumstances of people to really understand them. 
Oh yeah, well that's the cringe. That's the cringe. Yeah. Wow. That's the cringe. Smug's right. Though that, that was what I was looking for in the last one. There's a smell people. Like that's the a smell. You gotta smell. When it, did she say this? Kamala this all day. When did she say this? Is this is a quote. Uh all day, Kamala. I don't know. It's it's from her her quote archive on uh Good online. God. What an absurd thing. Wait, so it is Kamala. It is Kamala, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you guys nailed it. <laughs> So the thing about the thing about Veep or Veep is it is like the last one I got multiple wrong. This one I feel like I've now honed what I'm looking for. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, the, the cringe tell I think is dead on. The cringe tell. She, and the, and the funny thing is like when you're watching Veep, part of the humor of the series is like you're you're supposed to like cringe <laughs> at these people making such poor decisions and, and, and you know being generally terrible people. Right? But the fact that Kamala is way more cringy, like yeah, it's that's oh the funniest God. thing is that she's actually to the point where Veep didn't think they could go. No, yeah. right, yeah. Like if that was in the writers' room and they proposed that dialogue, they'd be like, "No, that's not realistic. You can't yeah, do that. That's way no too politician." Would okay, say so that. what about a lightning round? One more to see who wins. Ooh, okay. Ooh, yeah, right. I'm with it. Okay. Final, fifth, statement on the issue of Walmart. Yeah. They should stop selling guns. Wow. So that's a tougher one. Oh man, you're right. I got my secret signal. Okay. <clears throat> so ordinarily I would go with HBO on this one because of how outrageous it is, but here's the problem. I know that there are quotes that are sourced back to a Democratic primary that have lost their goddamn mind. Yep. And this was a legit debate of which you couldn't get far enough because if you remember beto at that point was See, like, I, I love when holmes brings in the the deep knowledge yeah well <laughs> beto was dragging them all to the left yeah yep. yeah 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 and he was like ban all guns yeah. oh yeah we should he, he we should take your ar we're coming for yeah. your ar-15 we're coming for him we're gonna so she had to figure out she was still in the race at this point she had to figure i'm betting that that's a kamala quote that was it guess. is, in fact, a Kamala quote. <laughs> <laughs> There's no separation even in the lightning Amazing. round. Amazing. <laughs> what a game. Do, God, do you you know what that actually reminds me of? Do you remember in the primary when she got on the debate stage and she was like, I'm, I, I'm taking a stand. We need to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. Who's with me? <laughs> yeah. who, who, who's with me? And she's like looking all around and everyone else is like, God, cringe, dude. Go away. <laughs> like, Stop speaking. And now she's vice president. She's she's vice president. And she <laughs> Oh my God. That whole campaign was unbelievable. Remember she took like four positions on Medicare for all? Right. I I, I love how uh there is an absolute meltdown happening right now in the administration of like they know they're like it's becoming clear by the day Joe Biden is not all there. Like, you right. know, Uncle Joe's he's he's lost a step for sure. Uh, and they're like, are we going to be stuck with Kamala at the well, top and they're of the conflicted. They're like, uh -oh. And you can tell by what you read, because Democrats, unlike Republicans, Democrats air all their grievances through the mainstream media. Yeah. Right? So it's all background and discussion. And anytime you see an oppo article pop up on Kamala, which we did for several months, it's not because Republicans are pitching him. Hell, the media doesn't listen to Republicans at all. Democrats are pitching it. Right? Yep. So they're trying to get out from underneath this nonsense. Dude, I mean, you know, there's that whole... the. You, you guys see that Axios article? Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, so there was an art article in Axios and the headline, Scoop, 
inside a Kamala Harris crisis dinner <laughs> is basically the synopsis is she had to get all these outside advisors to come in and help write the ship because of how bad her press is. <laughs> Incredible. You know, it's like one of those, that's the oldest trick in politics is like things are going so badly, but if I invite people in who speak to the media regularly and make them feel like they have an opinion, well, then maybe I can get more people on my side. <laughs> it's just such like bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's such a politics of a bygone era, era honestly. It's, it's ridiculous. But I, you know what I thought you were going with this is the red wave. Well, yeah. So Axios also had, did a piece yeah. that seemed awfully familiar to listeners of the Variety program. Yep. So for six months, we've been telling you the red wave's coming. Yep. And for six months, we've been telling you that there are, are three things that are fueling the red wave. You can say them in your head. Inflation mm-hmm. in the economy, rising crime, yep. border. There you go. We've been saying, we literally have had it. Every guest we've had on, every discussion, every podcast we've done since January, we've talked about these three things. So Axios prints this week a article that says <clears throat> there are three things that are fueling a potential red wave that Democrats are very concerned about. Inflation. <laughs> Rising crime and the border crossing surge are creating a perfect storm for Republicans to make midterm gains. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> fellas, fellas, look, I, you know, you know how much I hate to toot our own horn. <laughs> you know how much I hate it. But you don't really actually have to be a political scientist. You just have to look around every once in a while and listen to people and understand what they are concerned about. Right. You know, it, 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 and it's coming. The problem is that it, there. I think left wing media is starting to kind of get that things are going very wrong for them. Like uh, MSNBC reports on consumers quote terrified of rising prices under Joe Biden. There's a quote that said, "I can't hardly afford the same food I bought a year ago." That's just ridiculous. <clears throat> ridiculous. One, two, three, folks. I mean, the red wave is on the way. It's on the way. And they're making it worse because they're also now injecting COVID and, and new discussions of mask mandates and lockdowns and all that stuff that you heard Marty McCary talk about that's just utter bullshit, but they actually have to have their ideology prevents them from having an adequate governing structure around that. They have to have a top-down, completely prescriptive mold on how to deal with every crisis. Right, and that's their that's their approach. They're really like when they said "build back better," that this is what they had. Like we got this crisis, the like the public is already stunned by how bad the economy is going, and they're like, "All right, well, under the guise of the crisis, let's do this." And 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 that's exactly you know perfect segue into our guest. Yeah. So the taxes thing is what they're trying to slip in before they just lock things back down, and and it's a much bigger issue than an ideological or partisan debate that everybody in D.C. and the media would have you believe. This is literally about whether or not you want to turn America into a Western European country, if you want to eliminate a market-based economy, whether you want to eliminate upward mobility, right? The ability basically is, is core to the American dream as you can imagine, that you're born with nothing, that you can ultimately achieve something. If you believe in that, you ought to be engaged because this, is, this eliminates it. It eliminates it. It taxes the hell out of absolutely everything. 
And I, I just felt like from our perspective, we can only do so much to explain this from a partisan standpoint. Let's bring in an expert to actually give you the nuts and bolts. So here's Senator Mike Crapo. I want to welcome to the program a guy who is extraordinarily effective. I always think of, of Washington as putting lawmakers in kind of two categories, the ones that you see on TV all the time and then the ones that are behind the scenes actually making things happen. There is nobody who is more effective in actually getting things done than our next guest, Idaho Senator Mike Crapo. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Josh, and thank you for that very kind intro. Well, listen, you know, I, I've known you and your incredible staff for a lot of years, and the dedication is obvious to anybody who's spent any time with you guys. Uh, you are as substantive and good on these issues that you preside over as, as anybody, and you're right in the thick of it right now. You are a ranking member of the Finance Committee, and boy, oh boy, do Democrats have some ideas. Oh, for sure. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we're all focused on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and I'd be glad to visit with you about it if you want. But, but what is looming is the just reckless uh, tax and spend spree that the Democrats are preparing. And I think most of the attention seems to be going to the spending side of it, which is terrible. But there is a phenomenal tax side of it that Americans ought to be very worried about. Yeah, I, I want to get into that with you because I don't think we've collectively spent nearly enough time talking about how devastating these tax increases would be on our economy. You hear about the corporate rate. Obviously, that's a huge job killer if you reverse the Trump tax cuts there. But there's a lot more in there. Oh, definitely. And if you like, let's just start going. Let's through just some do of it. Those. Yeah. Well, let's start with the corporate tax increase, because that is the sort of the linchpin of uh, what they're doing, though not nearly the, the totality of it. And one of the points that I like to make to people is that uh, the president says he's not raising taxes on anybody who makes less than $400,000 a year. And he uses the corporate tax increase as this uh, tax on these terrible, wealthy corporations. Uh, the reality is that a tax on corporations is a tax that is borne primarily by the workers through their wages and benefits and by retirees in America, people who are trying to put away some money as an investment for their retirement who will pay those taxes. This is going right squarely at the elderly, mostly in the retirement package areas, but even those who are building toward their retirement and those who have jobs for in a corporation. And that is squarely a tax increase. And I want to give one more perspective to this. If you go back to 2017, when the Republicans passed their tax reform, we cut the corporate tax rate. Why? Because we had the highest corporate tax rate of the developing of the developed world. And we were so anti-competitive in our tax rates that companies were leaving the United States in order to get a better tax climate. In fact, many companies were leaving involuntarily through uh, takeovers that were being paid for by the savings in taxes. And we were so anti-competitive. You remember the inversion battle we were having? Yeah. Our companies were inverting. After our 2017 Tax Act, when we fixed the corporate rate, we didn't just slow down inversions. We stopped them. Inversions ended. And in fact, the reverse started happening. Companies, capital, economic growth started flowing back into the United States. And this proposed corporate tax increase is going to put us right back. We won't be at the top. We'll be number two of the developed world in our corporate tax rate again. And we'll be right back in that same box. So wow. it, hits workers, it hits retirees and it hits our global competitiveness. Yeah, well, you're entirely right. And one of the things that got absolutely 
zero attention after the 2017 bill that you were referring to uh, was wage growth, right? I mean, we've been so stagnant for so many years in terms of employee wage growth across this country, but all of a sudden it unleashed this incredible, to your point, this is borne by the workers that ultimately have their wages go up or down depending on how much capital is available in these companies. Yeah, and I don't remember the exact statistic, but wages grew after we fixed the corporate tax rate at an average of 3% or more um, a year for several years. And I think the monthly increase was 3% for something like 18 straight months. And the biggest benefit of that was in the middle and lower income categories. And so once again, we're going to see that hit happen when we start reversing this process and wages go down. And I should mention that this is not exactly tax policy, it's the spending side of it, but we're seeing inflation today at over 5%. That is in essence a tax. And it's more than the tax of the benefits that people are getting under the COVID legislation. No, no, no question about it. I, I think we have seen an incredible amount of concern from our listeners and from everybody across the country about just like basic groceries, right? I mean, you just, it doesn't right. take much to, to, to see that the, what you paid for two months ago is all of a sudden doubled. And yet everybody's yeah, just, trying to flood the rink with more spending. Let me just throw out a couple statistics that I've got here. Already we've seen uh, used cars have gone up 45%. Now that's a high increase. Most, most uh, products aren't that high. Gasoline has gone up 45%. Airfare has gone up 25%, but when you get to groceries, just one example, whole milk has gone up 7.5%. This is just hitting, once again, it's hitting those very people that President Biden says he supposedly wants to protect. No kidding. Let me ask you about this, because I haven't heard anybody connect these two issues, but it's always been in sort of my head here, is that part of the inflation problem that we're seeing is supply chain, clearly. That's right. Coming out of COVID. And I have to think when you're talking about raising taxes on suppliers here and raising taxes on, you know, each and every step along the manufacturing chain domestically, that's got to make supply chains even more complicated than they are now, doesn't it? It absolutely does. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head in addition to all of the other impacts, and there are more. But one of the key ones is the damage that the president's tax proposals, not just the corporate tax increase, but the capital gains tax increase and even the inheritance tax increase that they're talking about are going to do just that. And I'll just give you another bit of perspective on this. You remember during what was called the China bill, which we were working on in the Senate a few months back, which was trying to make us more competitive against China. Uh, One of the key pieces of that was trying to bolster our support of our supply chains. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons, by the way, that you see such strong Republican support for the infrastructure part of the, of the spending that the president has proposed, uh, even though that's a very small part of his $5 trillion spending proposal, it's like a $500 billion piece of it. Right. But the mm-hmm. reason, one of the key reasons for that is that that spending is supply side spending. It is counterinflationary. And it's very important to make that point about that piece that the Republicans are willing to work with them on, because that piece of it will actually generate the supply side strengthening, more jobs, stronger companies, stronger supply chains across the board, increased employment, increased opportunity for capital formation and growth in our economy. And that's the exact thing that we need right now to counter this explosion of the reckless spending spree that the president and his administration 
are pursuing on all other fronts. Yeah, in other words, the exact opposite of the quote unquote human human infrastructure that President Biden and his allies want to talk about, right? Which I think amounts to just basically flooding cash into communities for for who knows what. I mean, it seems like it it's is. just an endless amount of just money. When people understand what that is, I mean, the president calls it human infrastructure. Right. What he's talking about is free child care, free elder care, free college, uh, you know, free whatever, that making the American public more dependent on the federal government. Uh, you know, there's a broad view that, you know, one of the greatest strengths of America is the ability to, to build your own American dream. And that is building your own independence, your economic independence, your freedoms, and all of the kinds of things that America has stood for for so long. The whole approach to this second I, I was going to say second half, it's like the second 90% of what the president is proposing do, to do is to basically make it so that the government is trying to provide your American dream for yeah, you. Absolutely. And yeah. make you dependent on the government for the American dream. And it's just the exact wrong approach for what America should be all about. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. We've talked about this quite a bit on the program about how COVID provided an opportunity for some of the progressive left to map out essentially yep. what a perfect governing structure would look like, right? When you can go to work, what jobs are essential, whether your kids can go to school, we'll send you a check every once in a while to sort of keep you, yep. keep you satisfied. I mean, but this is basically what they have in mind, right? Yeah, it is. But, but, but you know, a key part of America has been left out. And that is the small businessman, the farmer, the producer, the, the worker, even though the, the president claims he's, he's uh, supporting labor, as we talked earlier, they're cutting the foundation out from underneath the, what, what labor means. Because labor was one of the key things that people could use to get their hand on that ring and build their own American dream. Uh, and, and now, again, that is being undercut by all of this. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just no question about it. And plus, we still have this, this worker shortage issue. Right. I mean, we're still dealing with unemployment plus ups. I mean, we had the, the with the eviction moratorium thing that they did to the CDC this week, which for my money, I don't know what you think about it, but it seemed crazy. It was uh, time to let that go. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, look, if we're paying, we're understandable coming into this COVID situation that we wanted to make sure that there's a safety net for people. But once you start paying unemployment plus, and then you yep. start sending additional checks now you kind of have to start asking the question, how is it that people are missing rent, right? <laughs> exactly. An interesting point that seems to be just glossed over. But, you know, let's think about this for a second. We've, we've just been talking about the American dream and labor and, and all of that. Uh, we're now talking about the fact that we can't get people to go to work because yeah. we are paying them not to work. Yeah. And it, it's just the reverse approach to how we should be solving this. And when you look at the rental side, the battle we fought when we were initiating these very programs that now fortunately uh, have expired or, or will hopefully get to expire um, was many of us were arguing, yes, we do need to provide COVID relief in the housing arena. But the way to provide that relief is not to prohibit evictions. It's to help those who are renting get the support to pay their rent. Yeah, right. And, like a, you know, like let job. an economy work. <laughs> and if we have to boost and look, the Republicans under President Trump's last year did four COVID bills. I'll remind everybody that all four of those COVID bills were bipartisan. Exactly. We negotiated yeah. them and 
the totality of those four bills was $4 trillion of emergency relief. So Republicans get it, that we needed to respond to COVID, but we didn't respond in a way that basically undercut work, undercut housing, undercut the willingness and ability of people to build their own American dream. We just helped to stand up these businesses so that they could reopen and we could re-engage in the America that we ought to be building. Oh, really well said. So let me ask you just ballpark. You have a, a good eye for votes and, and what the respective moods are in the conferences up on Capitol Hill. What do you think the chances are that Democrats can get this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill across the finish line? You think they can get that done? Um, the answer is, is uh, yes and no, but let me explain that. Okay. Uh, first of all, it's not 3.5. That's the number they've given it, but that's because they were only scoring it for five years. They, they couldn't do a 10-year score because that would have made it obviously a, an eight or nine trillion dollar oh, bill. That's a great point. That's a <laughs> but, great point. But the point is, um, you know the process up here. The, the initial bill will be a budget instruction. And that instruction is now proposed to be a five trillion or a 3.5 trillion over five years. Uh, I think that they will get that vote. Uh, but people need to understand that, that that means only that the committees that are relevant to this budget that they put together, there's about five or six committees that will actually do the spending and do the taxing. Those committees get an instruction and then they have to come back with their individual pieces of that $3.5 trillion instruction. And they don't have to come back with the full amount. So they could pass a $3.5 trillion instruction and then the committees could come back with anything up to 3.5 trillion. So okay. my point is the issue is still out there. How far will they be able to get the votes to go? And that gets back to the infrastructure deal that's now going on. And as you know, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema and several other senators on the Democratic side want to put negotiations into, the, into place on this that has succeeded so far on the real solid infrastructure piece of it. It has not yet succeeded and won't succeed to be a bipartisan approach to the rest of the president's spending. Right. But the fact that we have shown that we can put together a deal with those Democrats who will work with us, I believe, and many of us believe, has put them in a position to stand up more strongly to their caucus on the next package. So many of us are very hopeful, and this is kind of a long way to answer your question as to yeah. do they have the votes to do it. Many of us are very hopeful that they don't have the votes to get all the way to 3.5 trillion when they put the individual bills together. And that in fact, uh, especially if some of our colleagues on the Democrat side, in fact, just if just one of our colleagues on the Democrat side will stand up against some of these terrible tax increases, which we haven't gone all the way through yet, <laughs> but if, if just one of our of, of their side will stand up against some of those tax increases, then they won't be able to get to 3.5 trillion. Well, I listen. That's very well explained. Actually, a great education for all of us. I sure hope you're right because we our economy just can't take what they are trying to do. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we mentioned, you mentioned the estate tax, you mentioned the corporate tax. We've, we've talked a little bit about the doubling of cap gains. Yeah. Any other monsters in here you want to point out? Yeah, there are a couple more. Uh, first of all, the Democrats are going to try to undo the salt deduction cap. And I, oh I yeah, won't. that's my favorite, my favorite bit of hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a tax cut for the wealthiest. Right. And, and that's a tax cut that we made in our 2017 uh, tax bill. They're going to they're, they're gonna allow, well, we, we 
increase those taxes because right. they were inappropriate. And now the Democrats are going to cut the taxes for the wealthiest in America. Uh, but let's let's leave that one aside again. Amazing. That's a, that's a tax cut. That's the one tax cut they are right. willing to do. Uh, but the one that I that maybe we should give a little more attention to is their international tax policy. Uh, the United States, in the 2017 Tax Act, we adopted a change in our global tax policies, which again made us more competitive globally. And a part of that was to establish a, a, a minimum corporate tax in America. And we're the only country in the world that has one. Mm-hmm. Ours, ours right now is about. Well, when you talk, when you look at how it plays out, it comes to about a, a real tax of around 14% minimum on other corporations in, in the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the president and Janet Yellen and his team want to double that in America, which would, again, make us hugely anti-competitive. We struck the right balance when we did ours. And they want to get the rest of the world to agree to a global minimum tax right along with us. Now, that's not necessarily so bad if, if everybody else in the world were to match which, up. Which there's no way anybody does that. Right? <laughs> there's no way. And not only that, but, but uh, they are proposing to, just to get the rest of the world to agree to, say, a 15% rate, which is very close to what we are now. And then they want to double ours on top of that. <laughs> and, and not only that, they want to do it now before the rest of the world agrees, which the rest of the world won't agree. So, so we're looking at, once again, putting a, a crazy tax increase globally, putting America back into an anti-competitive posture and, uh, and doing it before. The, it's sort of like if, if we build it, they will come. But the reality is, if we double it, they will certainly not. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Stay competitive. I feel so like, like two-thirds of being a foreign minister practicing foreign policy in a developed country is sitting back and watching progressives try to destroy the American economy and take advantage accordingly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's just incredible. And oh. there's one other, one other tax piece I want to throw out before we move on, but, uh, and that's really not a tax increase. It is an IRS increase. Yes. And that is the proposal to increase the tax collections by putting about $80 billion into the IRS. Now, I think most people just immediately say, whoa, when they hear about that. Yeah. But on top of that, uh, which, by the way, would, would like double or triple the budget for the IRS over the next decade. And um, on top of that, what they want to do is to give the IRS, actually to give statutory mandates so that every single individual and small business and large business, every single entity that has a financial account somewhere. Like if you got a bank account, you got a credit, a checking account, you got a savings account. If you have more than $600 worth of transactions in your account in any year, that has to be reported to the IRS. The IRS is going to be able to to get data access on virtually every person, small business, or other entity in oh, the United States. What a nightmare. And, and this is just a phenomenal invasion of privacy that they are seeking to impose. That's incredible. I can't thank you enough for pointing all that out. I guarantee half of our listeners didn't know any of this stuff. This is this is terrific. One question before I get to my, my final three that I want to hit you up on, because I know you've given thought to this. If we're fortunate enough in 2022, which I believe we, we will be, to regain a House and Senate, Obviously, there's still a Democratic president in charge, but you can begin thinking about these things. Have you wrapped, you'll be in a really kind of a catbird seat to help sort of reignite a conservative reform, mm-hmm. um, particularly on the tax side of things. 
have you begun to think internally with your team about the things you might want to do if given the opportunity? No, absolutely. And not that we're, you know, measuring the drapes before exactly, we win right. the election. But you got to be we, prepared, right? We're definitely looking at what can we do. It's, it's also the damage control that we're trying to do now. Right. And that is a lot depends on what they are successful in doing in terms of all these tax policies, because we're going to have to unwind every single one of them. These are yeah. devastating tax policies. Yeah. And uh, and that's critical. And there are a number of other tax reforms that are, I think, additive. It's, it's sort of the technical corrections side of our 2017 legislation that would improve and strengthen our tax policy. And, and we're looking at those. So on the tax front, major activity probably will be needed. In, in that arena. And, uh, but then I'll just look at the finance committee side because that's where I'm the ranking yeah. member now. Remember I was the banking committee chairman. There's a lot yeah, right. in the banking committee in the financial world that needs to be addressed. Uh, again, most of it unwinding bad things that are happening right now. But, but on, the, on the finance committee side, there's one more huge piece and that is the trade piece. Yeah. Uh, if we, if we wanna stay competitive with China, and with Russia and other country, other economies that are aggressively coming after us, even to the point of trying to make their currency the global currencies. Um, we have got to pay attention to things like supply chains, which you referenced earlier. Uh, many are regulatory policies that make it hard for our companies to compete with China right. and Russia and their companies, and in trade. Uh, this administration has basically said they're, they're not involved, they're not interested in any kind of multilateral trade agreements. We need to be engaged aggressively in multilateral trade negotiations. No kidding. They're not even very willing to go very far in, in bilateral trade agreements. We have countries pleading with us uh, to engage with them in trade negotiations because if we don't, they are going to have to deal with China and they don't want to. They want to be our trading ally and we are not engaging with them. So that's another big piece of what we need to look at if we get the opportunity to control the economy. Wow, I'm glad you raised that. Yeah, economic suicide with multiple parts, it feels like. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Listen, that's right. I appreciate the good job that you all are doing and trying to stop this and, and, and if we have to, unwind it. I got three big questions for you, Senator, and this is kind of a little get to know you piece. All right. But, you know, not a lot of people have been able to do this with Senator Crapo because he's, you know, <clears throat> he's always working. He doesn't get the lighter side of things, but here, here goes. All right. Your last meal on earth, what would it be? Well, that's an easy one for me. First of all, it would start with a dark leafy green salad with lots of rich nutrient vegetables. But then, <laughs> but then I would move immediately to the main course, which is going to be a thick, juicy ribeye steak, medium rare. There you go. And a, and a 40 count Idaho baked potato. Yes. Lots of butter and, and uh, sour cream. Now, 40, maybe you listeners don't know what 40 count means. Uh, we put our potatoes in a 50-pound box, and 40 count means that 40 of these big ones fit in a 50-pound box. So these are potatoes <laughs> that average about 1.2 pounds, and that would be my final meal. It's like a football, basically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love that. What a great deal. All right, so you've had a long, storied career in politics. If you weren't into the, if you never got into public service to begin with, what do you think you'd be doing with your life? Well, I would like to answer that question by saying I'd be a pro fly fisherman or there a National go. Geographic photographer or something like that, but I don't right. have that skill set. <laughs> uh, you know, most of, most of my life has been spent in the, I guess what I would call the private sector, 
financial arena, whether it's tax and trade or the, the banking and the securities and financial transactions. And so I'm sure that it would be something in that zone of uh, financial transactions in the private sector. And uh, that could involve international. Uh, I'd love to be engaged internationally uh, in, in private sector activities. I'd love to be part of the effort uh, pushing back on China and showing how we can compete. Uh, but being engaged in, uh, in private sector uh, financial transactions and tax and trade policy would be something I would uh, hope that w would be my future in that, that possibility. Yeah, well, yeah. We, we know you've got the skill set, so it makes total sense from that perspective. All right, so third and final question. This is a little, you got to dig deep on this one because it's kind of goes to your motivations. What motivates Senator Mike Crapo more? The thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Well, undoubtedly, the thrill of victory. I'm, I'm going to be surprised if anybody answers that question other than that way. But, but let me give that a, a little bit of perspective from my point of view. I got elected to the uh, House of Representatives in 1992. And if you'll remember the history, that was the last two years of the 40-year Democrat reign in yeah. the uh, House of Representatives. So I was there for those last two years, and I was in the minority. And I'll tell you what, I did not like that. I bet not. <laughs> and I, I was actually so disappointed in it that I was getting ready. I, I was just saying, well, I don't need to do this. I can do something better with my life. But I hung in there. And I can remember one night as I was walking out of the House chamber at about three in the morning after some really terrible stuff had been done in the dead of night, literally on purpose so that the press corps had gone to bed already and they didn't, they didn't see it happening. Was this like was the, the Dan Rostenkowski days? Of the <laughs> it was those days, yes. Yeah, it wasn't okay. that issue. Yeah. But it was one where just abusive procedures were conducted to, uh, to achieve an objective that the public did not want. And uh, I, was, I remember walking out of there and thinking, you know what, I'm not running again. I, I, I'm not going to do this again because there's just no point in being a part of this. And uh, something just hit me. Uh, I actually turned around and looked at the Capitol Dome. And I saw it was night, they had the dome lit up and there were these birds flying around it and it just gave me a patriotic feeling. And I thought, you know, I'm not gonna let them make me quit. Yeah. And, and so I stuck in and I didn't know this at the time, but we were a few months away from becoming the majority for the first time <laughs> in 40 years. And uh, I helped Newt Gingrich become the speaker of the house. We balanced the budget in two years and that's the victory part, the thrill of victory. Yeah. And, and having opportunities to do big things like that yeah. has not, it's not been easy, but over the time since then, uh, as I've served in the Senate, uh, there have been a number of opportunities to achieve big things like that. And it's that that motivates me. It's the thrill of victory and of achieving those things that make such a difference, not just for America, not just for individuals, but for the world. And this, this is an incredible place where incredible things can happen but you have to stick in for the fight. Oh, man, that's just fantastic. Very well said, Senator. I can't thank you enough for your time, giving us your insight from what's really happening here in these committee rooms and, and everything else. Come back soon. We'd love to chat with you again along the way. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Josh. Senator. So there it is. Perfect. So there it is. I think we all learned something here today. I'm going to have Senator Grapo do my taxes next year. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you're looking for a side hustle, sir, <laughs> yeah. I think you can make a lot of money. I mean, he knows a lot about it. But, it, you know, what was striking to me is both he and when we had Pat Toomey, who's another expert, talk about this, is what they keep get back going back to is 
the general thesis of America, that you didn't have to be born rich or powerful, that you didn't have to be a state sponsor, that you didn't have to be sort of anointed part of this class of Americans that are ruling body, that that virtue, which is still held in conservative America, is absolutely eviscerated by the progressive left right now. And they've shown that. I mean, look at Granholm and Proterra. We had Foldy on the pod to talk about it. But I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about. It's that our government picks winners and losers and says, you are anointed. And oh, 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 oh by the way, all the investors will be people in our administration. Right. Kind of you like know? And like nobody really cares. If you have $47 billion, why do you care if you raise rates a couple of percent what difference does that make you know you shed a couple of million bucks big deal but if you're trying to open a small business anywhere in this country if you're trying to raise your family out of poverty into a middle class and god willing something better than that what do you think 40 50 60 percent taxes does to you yep what if you wanted to take the money that you made out of something and reinvest it well they're going to double capital gains you can't do that you actually can't make money. You can't make build wealth with Democrat plans. The only thing you can do, only thing you can do is subside and listen to what the government tells you. And that's exactly it. Uh, I mean, great episode. Great episode. We, we, we got some expertise on this on this episode. So we gave the folks the veggies, give them the candy. That's another great episode, gentlemen. I love it. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.